Hey, I'm Stephen Scott from Big Mouth Audio. Welcome to the Creative Leaders Podcast. Okay, Sam, welcome to the Creative Leaders Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well, kind of well. Got a bit of a sore throat, but other than that, I'm, I'm firing on. Firing okay. Good, good. Um, we're just going to dive straight into it as we always do. Um, and I'm going to ask you to, in your own words, kind of tell us a little bit about why you do what you do. Um, what's the kind of background? What's your origin story uh, that leads you up to the position that you're in today? Well, I think probably like a, a few other people around my age, my Path into games is quite convoluted. Um, I came into games fairly late. I was in my early 30s when I joined, got into the games industry proper. So I started off, let's see. So after being a very bad student that didn't achieve very much educationally, uh, I then went on to do some laboring and I then did quite a bit of um, just practice artwork. I was, art was my, my strong point. I especially loved comics and the uh, late 80s and early 90s was a great time to be to love comics because we had uh, we had a lot of fantastic titles coming out. So when Dark Knight and Elektra and, and all those greats were coming out, so I loved my comic books. And but the eighties in the north of England and and early nineties north of England wasn't a great time to try and find work. Um, so we kind of I spent a fair bit of time unemployed, and then we did um, I did some works with my dad, oddly enough, who worked in management consultancy and worked in. He did negotiation and strategic alliancing training, which is an odd thing for me to have played any part in, but there's a part of that called behavior analysis. And that is monitoring the behaviors in a negotiation or a meeting and then giving feedback on it. And it paints a picture of what's happening at that meeting. It paints a picture of the other culture and, and gives you a tool set to help change and, and identify what you're doing. It turned out I was quite good at that. So I did that for quite a while while I carried on doing my comic book stuff. And that kind of continued until the mid-90s when I set up a little comic book studio with a couple of my friends in Sheffield uh, in an office called The Workstation. And we made indie comics slowly. <laughs> and and let's, let's say we learned a few lessons. Um, and we released a couple of titles um, uh, in by about 96, 97, which did okay. But not didn't exactly set the world on fire, but did okay. They were good. We like we liked and we thoroughly enjoyed working on them. Um, and it's and then in, by the early two thousands, we back then you had two big comic book distributors, and they merged together, and one of them paid pennies on the dollar for the money they still owed you, and that was enough to see the end of us, unfortunately. But during that time, well, as we kind of faded out, as, as, as that was happening, we did quite a lot of design work. Um, and this is going back for the artists out there. I was using Photoshop when Photoshop was young enough that it had one level of undo and no layers in it, um, which is a horrifying idea now if you try yeah. to speak to any artists now about that. <laughs> but I was coloring comic books using that. Um, and I was also a, an, an inker. So we used to, I used to ink with pen and ink, with brush and ink as well. Um, and it was early enough that you would photograph them and then overlay acetate and overlay lettering on top, hand done, 
and then photograph that and put that into into the book. That's how they were made. So not an awful lot of compu- computer work until the back end when we started to Photoshop actually started to do something. Um, so we did some design work there. We did we in our building we had um, we had there was an ad agency called Camel who did a lot of the advertising for Core and a couple of the other um, game studios. One of them was that had been Core did um, Tomb Raider. So one of our one of the more interesting bits of work we used to do was draw out poses for advertising hoardings for Lara Croft because doing a render took a long time. So we would draw the poses, put it, send them out, and then they choose which pose they want, and then they would then ask them to pose the model in that, and then a week later the render would come back that they would print for for their advertising hoardings, and um, we did um, we did a couple of those, and one of them. The guy was Max Rayner was the um, was the artist, and he's still around. He's still doing. He's in the DC stable. He's now drawing Batman and and the rest. Um, he did one pose that I really liked, and I think it made the end of the film, the Lara Croft film. She holds up two guns at an awkward angle, and that was one of our poses. So I'm a little bit a little bit proud of that one. Oh, to be fair, it's Nigel's pose. I mean Max's pose, not mine. Um, and we also had Designers Republic underneath us as well, below us. So Designers Republic were the design team that did the the work for the first wipeout. And for the older the older people on the other PS1, when the first wipeout came out, it had an incredible design style to it. It had this fusion of Western and um, Japanese iconography. Um, and um, it was just it was spectacular. It was well ahead of its time, and it gave it such a cool feel. Um, that was done by the Designs Republic, who were just below us. So we had a little kind of artistic community around there. Um, during that time, I occasionally did a bit more um, behavioral analysis work as it kind of wound down. We had a nice little run-up to the year 2000 where everybody was spending lots and lots of money, and then the year 2000 passed and nobody spent any money anymore. So that quickly cut off. And at that point, we went off, um, and Nigel Carroll doing his um, penciling work and his comic work, I did. Um, I did more um, consultancy work, more behavioral analysis work, because that was kind of bringing in money, and I enjoyed it. And then from there, um, I took. I decided I can either dive into consultancy full time, or I can actually have a go at games, which is what I really wanted to do. Um, so I gave it one last go at games. So I, I went down to London and traded in Maya for three months. And then came back, worked on my portfolio endlessly, as everybody does, because your portfolio is never ready. Um, and then we then I did a bit of work, kind of as an outsourcer, um, working back at the studio that trained me. They did they set up a temporary studio that did um, buildings for New York Tycoon, and so we had about so they're all ex students, and we all got back together again. And for uh, again, uh, two or three months, we did these, we we created these buildings for uh, New York Tycoon. Um, and then after that, I applied to Sumo. And Sumo, looking back, was my first ever interview and my first ever job application. Um, and they accepted me in there, um, partly because they liked a lot of the work that we did on flyers for the for Sheffield. We did a lot of the flyer work, and they liked that. They recognized it. They went, oh, this is cool. I like this. I remember this. And I think that just kind of got them to, to bypass the unfinished state of my portfolio. <laughs> And I joined Sumo in 2006, and from there we did first work I did with Driver76, which ironically had me doing comic books again. 
because the cutscenes were all done as a comic book style, but in the 1970s, uh, printed style like that, which was great. And then moved on within that project, just doing a huge amount of optimization as we tried to cram New York City into a PSP. Um, and then Sumo, I, I stayed on Sumo's journey, and they just grew. Um, they got a great reputation as a safe pair of hands. We did some fun, fantastic cross-platform cross work, really close relationship with Sega. Um, and we did, uh, well, I think we were able to do All-Stars Tennis, uh, Sega All-Stars Tennis, then on to do Sega All-Stars Racing. And it was with Sega All-Stars Racing, I uh, was an environment artist on that, um, that we first started to get my taste of external development, which was a field I'd move into permanently. Um, we worked with a studio, uh, a, a new studio by then called Lemon Sky, uh, in based in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Um, so we worked with them, and I worked on and off with them, light touch as a as environment artist. And then they set up in two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight. Um, they set up an India studio. Sumer itself set up a studio in India, an art studio in India, in Pune. And it was a bit of a rough reception. So this is back when external development or absolutely outsourcing by then was brand new. And there was a lot of uncertainty within the studio about how, especially when the artist, like, you know, how long before I'm out of a job? You know, this is a cheaper. And the senior management, the, the leadership team had never seen it as a job threat. They'd seen it as a supplement, seen it as a support. Um, so I, um, I was quite enthusiastic about it, to be honest. Um, and they said when they made the announcement that if anyone wants to go out to India, you can do. And so I put my name down. Um, and a few months later, uh, I had my review uh, with Darren Mills, who was uh, one of the founders, directors, the art, he's the art director there. And he asked in my review if I wanted to go out to India for six months. And the reason was the India studio was struggling. They were struggling to to deliver quality, they're struggling to deliver on time. The relationship with a studio, with a home studio was difficult. It obviously started off from a hard point. Um, and the idea was that to improve their quality, I'd go out there as an artist and, uh, you know, by I'd sit with them and work with them and, and we would kind of, I would, they would learn from me and we'd learn from each other and we'd improve. I said six months was too long, um, but I'll go out for three months if you fly my uh, then girlfriend and now wife out for a week in the middle, which they agreed to. So the first time I went out to India, I went out for three months, uh, lived out there for three months. Um, and that was really where my love of external development and my, my passion for it started, came from. Because it was the biggest challenge of my career by a long way, and probably still remains the biggest challenge of my career, the biggest challenge I've had to overcome, was getting, was getting the, the India studio um, back on track. And it's... A very long story. <laughs> the three months is a long story, which I, <laughs> I won't go into fully. Um, but on a very base level, one of the obvious questions is, uh, why is India not working well? And the standard response I got from the artists was, well, they're crap and they don't work very hard. And I went over there and I found that they were brilliant and they worked incredibly hard. It actually... it. It had nothing to do with their artistic skill, which is a good job because I'm a kind of middling artist. Like I did not set the world on fire. I was decent and I would have stayed in my decent lane probably my, my whole career. Um, 
But what I found there was actually it was all the things that I'd learned in the behavior analysis and the consultancy work um, that I'd done in other industries that were really came to help. It was all around communication. It was all around structure and the kind of work and the way they were asking for work. Um, and the, the studio culture itself over there, it was to do with that. That's where the stumbling blocks were. Um, and so I worked with them for three months out there and I, I learned to love India. I think India is a very hard place to go to, uh, especially if you're going there for three months. It's a, still, I've traveled a lot around the world and it's still the biggest culture shock of any country I've been to. And by the time I came back, I was very ready to come back. It had been a hard amount of work. It had been a trying time. It had been incredibly rewarding because of what we'd done. We did manage to turn the studio around. The studio grew significantly while we were there. We moved into new offices. And, um, uh, but India itself is exhausting. India itself is exhausting. It's, it's um, poverty and wealth next to each other. It will make you cry and make you laugh 15 times a day straight after each other it is back to back it's it's an exhausting place and when i came back i was very very ready to come back but um it's funny after about three or four months of being back in the uk i was part of me that was going i wonder when i get to go back out to india again right yeah. it gets under your skin yeah the people the place it's it's so different and it's so terrible and so wonderful and yeah it had gotten right underneath my skin um and we found over the next few months i went back to work on um, i think we were then working on all star transformed but i think it's probably my favorite project to have worked on sega racing all transformed was fantastic uh we were working there with the the ep for that was craig duncan who's now the studio head at rare um and the producer under him is joe neat who heads up the sea of thieves uh, project at Rare as well now, um, and Steve Lysette, uh, who was just who was basically a, a sumo and and Sega legend, um, and it was a fantastic project to work on. But Sumo India was struggling again, um, and so this time they asked if I would. They created a new role, which was a brand new title then called Outsource Manager, which was a new title to the industry really. Then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they asked if I would take, if I would apply for that job. And I applied for it and uh, I was given the job uh, about a month later. Um, and that's where I took on the role of outsource manager back in about, so this was about 2008, I think, or late 2008. Um, and yeah, I went out to help them. I went out to help Lemon Sky. I was given six months, no, six weeks, sorry, to get my feet under the table. And within the first week, I was sent out to Malaysia to help Lemon Sky, who was struggling with the, with the levels that they were on. And again, they did a fantastic job in turning things around. Um, and then I went on from that. We grew. We expanded the amount of external development we did at the studio. We expanded the Pune India studio. The relationship improved. Um, and after, I think I was there at Sumer in total about eight years. I was outsource manager for six of those. Um, and then, and that's when Xbox approached me if I would come and help um, join their central team, uh, looking after external development, supporting the external development teams for EMEA, for the European studios which then was Lionhead and Rare and Press Play um, and some other projects he had bubbling under around there uh, with a team based out of Seattle. So I joined. Um, and shortly after I, enjoyed, I joined, the central media team they're all part of completely disbanded. 
And our group went from nine people to three people. And then six months after that, went down to two people, which was me and Esteban Laura. Uh, he handled the middleware side of the external, the external tech side, and I handled the supplier side. So I got to look after um, support teams globally. Um, not because I was fantastic, but kind of by default, everybody else left. And we were six studios then with, you know, with Turn 10 and... And three, four, three, and the rest. Um, so I, the, my role there was to to understand the ecosystem of, of external development, to onboard suppliers, fold them into uh, Microsoft, deal with the Microsoft machine, help our teams talk and, and guide each other um, in, in how we do external development, and to educate some of the LT on, on what we do and, and fight our corner. Um, and so, yeah, we. Uh, our group remained me and Esteban and Jeff McCrory, who were, who was a part of the original group, but then was made a vendor, um, and he's now full time. Uh, and we bounced around Microsoft, and we bounced around the world, me and Esteban, uh, for for many years, um, and got to meet the incredible teams. So the wonderful thing about Xbox and Microsoft is that it it opens doors, and you 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 get to see so much and learn so much. And that's what I did. I learned. I've learned a huge amount of the teams that we've worked with, the fantastic external development managers we've got, um, and the the art teams and the and the production teams we have. Um, and so I've been supporting them. Now we were six studios, and we're now twenty five. And probably as of last week, I think we're nearing forty as of the ABK acquisition. Yep. So yeah, I started looking after three, and now support a whole bunch more. But that's not. It's being very generous to myself to say that I do, because with a way that we operate slightly differently and they i'm a service so some studios i work with very closely other studios i like touch some studios i don't work with at all it all depends on how how they're integrated and, and how we work together but that's how i've that and then the the founding of, and then xts the external development summit coming along and joining the advisory board and joining the peers and our community and building the external development community but that's where i've learned to love external development that's where i I learned, um, like I say, I was an average, a very average artist. So that's where I learned that my talent isn't particularly in that. My talent is in getting people who are much more talented than I am to work well with other people who are much more talented than I am. And I enjoy seeing them and I enjoy <laughs> their work. And that's kind of where, where I where I found that eventually in the, in the game world, I fit in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a... Uh, a familiar story. I mean, it's it's similar for me as well. There there is a, a real joy when you get to a point where you 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 actually see somebody else doing what you do, but to a you know a, a whole new level, and and you can you you kind of you can give them ideas or you can give guidance, and then you see that come back, and it's like well, wow, I've never thought of that. Or, <laughs> but it's it's a, it's a a familiar story of you know artist who also has had some kind of experience or education in a, in a more kind of, I guess, business, uh, you know, environment or management, and then sort of marrying those two skills. Um, and that's a, it's a really kind of interesting journey. And I definitely want to touch on, you know, XDS and your, uh, you know, position in the advisory board there, because it's, it's such a, an interesting part of the industry, external development. It's, you know, anyone who you speak to who's involved in that side of things is so passionate about it and just the fact that there is a you know wonderful conference dedicated to it you know speaks volumes in itself um was there was there a particular kind of 
leap going from you know Sumo, who are obviously massive at the moment, but I guess at the time that you left them, you know, going from from their studio to Xbox, was that you know was that quite a a, a shock to the system in terms of the size and the scale and, and the scope of what the job involved? Yes, it it kind of is. It was best. Uh, funny enough, my my final interview for my position at Xbox, um, the name of Dan. I'm trying to remember this. Oh no, Ben Camerano, who's now at Blizzard, was the head of creative media before it was disbanded. He was my final interview. So Xbox approached me for the job, and but I still went through nine interviews, and he was the last of them. And it was interesting because I said to him, "Look, I love Sumo, and I really enjoy working here. Why should I?" work for Xbox. Um, and his answer is probably the answer that you're looking for, which was, well, at Sumo, you get to affect how a game is made. If you come to Xbox, you get to affect how the games industry is made. And the size of the challenge kind of like, yeah, that's just, it's different. It is on a different scale. But like a lot of things that are at scale, it's, for the most part, outside of the huge volumes of admin and internal <laughs> internal machines that we've got to deal with. For the most part, it is scale is the only difference. The problems and the what you're dealing with is exactly the same, just bigger. It's just the numbers are bigger, but the the problems are the same, whether they're around communication, whether they're around about how you integrate and how you work, whether they're around potential, whether they're around people and cultures and, and all the rest. They are all exactly the same problems that I would have had as an outsource manager at Sumo, that just the scale had changed. Yeah. And why Why would you say, you know, with the with the position of external development and outsourcing, it, it seems to have much more focus in the games industry, you know, versus, you know, I mean, we do a lot of stuff in animation, for example, and obviously there's a lot of outsourcing that goes on there, but it's, there's there's less kind of focus on it, I guess. Why why is external development so important, so crucial um, to the studios that that you work with, for example? What's what's so special about it? Well, I mean, on a very base level, so you look at it now. But on a very base level, games don't get made without external development. It just doesn't happen. You have to get down to kind of at proper indie levels before you start see it, finding games that are completely untouched by um, external development. When you get up to the AAA, AA and AAA, the, external, the size of the external development teams is usually bigger than the internal development team. And that's if you discount QA and LOC, which are vital parts, obviously, of the external development process, but they go by volume. So even if you take that volume off, the scale is, is bigger than the development teams themselves. Um, I think... I don't know enough about the animation world to understand why there is a, a dead difference there. My suspicion is it may be down to nothing more than acknowledgement. We have moved away from the term outsourcing, but that's still really what it is. It's still, if you in any other industry, it would still be determined that called that way. And it's still quite often is called that here, but outsourcing has connotations. And it's not that. It's not throw it over the wall. It is not um, just cheap labor. It's not what we're doing here. Um, 
it's a vital, vital part of how we make games. And the shift away from... There are, there are companies that don't acknowledge that they work with external studios. And for, that's less true now, but it's certainly been true in the past. There are certainly projects who won't acknowledge all the people from external studios by name who worked on their project, which we absolutely should do. There is still um, a feeling it's a necessity. Okay, and this is where we are at the moment, I think. There is, we need external development. And the, and the fundamental reason why we need external development is we can't hire. We don't have those skills internally. Um, we can't scale to that. So given unlimited money, you still can't hire enough artists to do your job. Given unlimited money and space, you still can't bring in the expertise that you want. You still can't find the exact right people that you want. Um, and so basically you can't do it. You can't do it that way. There is, yeah, there is a, there's money to be saved. Um, there is because you're not dealing with HR. You're not dealing with all the, the on-site costs that come with hiring an employee. But also you're, you're doing something um, that is necessary to protect your studio as well. And this is something I think probably the, the smaller studios, the lesson of the smaller studios can really benefit from when it comes to external development. We've had a horrendous year, right? So this has been a, a, a terrible year for employment inside the games industry as we snap back from COVID. But if you look at the chart, the curve, the, it go, it, the curve of revenue is still kind of tracking to the same level it always did. We have, the industry itself has not massively shrunk in, in general terms. It just has this abnormal spike. And what external teams do that's so vital for the studios is that they are built to expand and shrink. They, a development studio has multiple, has a single revenue source, or, or maybe two, two projects on the go, two or three projects on the go. An external development studio has multiple revenue sources. So they can shrink and expand. So instead of your studio hiring and laying off, or instead of your studio hiring in huge amounts of contractors and laying off, instead of your studio trying to manage all those networks, what you're doing is you're, build, you're bringing in these external, de external de development teams that are able to marry with your studio. Um, and I think, funnily enough, one of the differentiators between animation and film and external development uh, and games is sheer duration. It takes years. So our external development partners that we work with are working with us for years and years on the same project. Sometimes, like if you look at um, Turn 10, you look at the Forza franchise, they have been working with Glass Egg for 17 years, I think. <laughs> Maybe longer. It may, it may even be pushing 20. Um, and they are absolutely vital to how they work. And so these relationships are really, really long-term. And I think in the animation industry, they kind of come and go. So you may well return to the same ones, but the project itself comes and goes within a six-month, eight-month, or a year-long period, and it's less so for, for games. So we are much closer tied to, to who we work with. And the statistics show that uh, the actual churn of external development suppliers when we pick new ones, it doesn't, that doesn't happen at the beginning of every project. We don't jump to other suppliers. We're not constantly looking within it's actually, we tend to stay with the same suppliers, but so long as the relationship is held. And in terms of finding that relationship, what's important? What are the kind of key things for, you know, an external service provider to consider in terms of going through due diligence, 
or just generally, you know, having their uh, having their service down. What's the what are the kind of key considerations that external development partners should be thinking about? Well, the insights report released by XCSRES gives you gives you pretty good insight into to what those. But if you look at the top five, so cost is in there usually hovering around number three. It's in the top five. I don't think it's ever been the top one, oddly enough. Communication um, and quality are the top two. Um, if you are a service provider and you're looking to, to understand what it is that will gain you work, what it is that will what it is that will put you in a good position. So yes, one due diligence, in terms of due diligence, it is understanding your security setup, is understanding how your company is made. Um, and how it's structured and it's solid. But honestly, um, I come at it from a slightly odd angle, right? So if, I, if, I'm, a, if I'm a developer, like Turn 10, uh, I'm looking for car and track artists in a realistic style who can do that. But because I sit centrally, because I'm working at a platform level, I'm looking at all the projects and, and all of what we do. So when it's a service process, we do, what should I be working? What is it you need? I'm like, I don't know. We do Sea of Thieves. And we do Halo, and we do uh, Starfield, and we do Hi-Fi Rush or whatever. You know, the, the, the style difference is just enormous. So it's best, I think, for you not to necessarily look at what the market needs, but there's no harm in it. Hell, we always need, there's always a, a market for VFX artists and technical artists and the hard to source ones. But in terms of your studio, it's what are you good at? And what do you enjoy? And then the fit can come along from that. So concentrate on what it is that you would like your studio to be. Ask your artist, what's your ideal project? What is it you really want to work at? What do we, what do we naturally lean towards? And then the fit can come along out of that. If you try and be all things to everybody, it doesn't quite work. Um, and a lot of the times we say we're looking for external partners, they're looking for that fit. They're looking for that creative fit. And it's not just a creative fit. It's not just a quality fit. It's a communication and a relationship fit because as we mentioned, it's years. We deal with year-long projects, years of project time. So we want teams we can communicate with. And I have seen teams go through tests. So usually what happens for an art team, so art by volume is the largest amount of external depth that we do, just a sheer volume. Um, when finding external partners, usually the usual practice, you, I'll put forward some suggestions, for example, and then they'll go through and find the ones they actually want to go to test, and then they'll have between three and five usually that they all go and test and they go through a testing process. And those testing processes can be quite short, can be like a week or two, or on the far end again, there's Forza again, which their car test is just monstrous. And it's, uh, it's the hardest art test I know in, in gaming. It's incredibly difficult. Um, but during that test, you will test not just the quality of the work and the turnaround, but you'll test the communication and the relationship. Um, and I would advise studios who are testing to really look at what how they want to test. Because studios test in very different ways. Um, there are studios that will test and they'll develop the perfect brief. Like oh, we'll we'll give them the, the the studio the best chance they possibly have of delivering quality to us. But then on the other side, there is what's it like in production? How often am I actually going to create that shiny pearl of a of a brief again? How often is it going to be two scribbles and a point to three links on Google Image Search? for what you actually want coming back, right? So do you do do you test like that? You say, look, I know it's going to be messy and we're not expecting perfection, but this is probably closer to what you're going to get. 
And so the mm-hmm. advice you is to pick whereabouts in that scale they, they kind of are. But there are certainly studios that have not selected the highest quality delivery from a test because they've worked with other studios. They've other studios in that test have come back and said, you know what? They're not as good as so-and-so. The results aren't as good as so-and-so. But I like working with them. And I can I trust I can communicate with them. I trust they'll raise problems when they're there. They'll be comfortable to to ask the right questions and and be honest. And I can get them to that standard of quality. I can get them there. Because at this point, in this level of maturity industry, you should be able to deliver. You should be able to deliver to quality. So the focus on relationship, communication, production management, um, and trust. Those kind of things becomes more important as the expectation of you should be able to make this uh, start to become standard. Yeah, that's really interesting because we even see that at supplier level in terms of you know uh, contractors that we bring on. It's it's amazing how often it defaults to just a simple: are they going to fit in with our team? Are they, are they going to fit into the culture? You know, are they are they just nice to have around? Are they fun to have around? And and then it's a question of, uh, you know, where does their work compare? And uh, yeah, and you can totally get them up to that point. But um, yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Um, you know, you know, I'm going to ask you about the the movie method. Um, okay, right. Yeah. That uh, you did a great talk at XDS, um, and then more recently, it's been kind of repurposed on the XDS podcast, um, which I listened to. A couple of months ago and i just found it really really fascinating um and so for our audience who maybe haven't sort of who are maybe not familiar with with uh, this particular uh, presentation i would love to kind of dive into that again and just kind of you know ask you to kind of talk us through this this concept of um making games with with the movie method and and your kind of research into that and and uh, kind of where your thoughts are, are on it just now. So so I looked at the movie method during um lockdown. Because I think we have we have kind of we've been fascinated with it as a as an industry for a long time. Um and I think we have an impression of what the movie method is and what but there's a difference to what it actually is. So I my suspicion is that when we talk about movie method, we talk about having a small core team, but at a base level, a small core team that drives a large creative production and i think the way we see it in games is that is a small core team and a hell of a lot of external development so really it's about how do we manage that volume of external development and that's how i think we pitch that's how we see uh, the movie method but i don't think that's the movie method and when i was looking into it that's what the movie method really is is it's a different way of creating sections of production and the two fundamental differences between games development and movie development is that games development is a ongoing run of interlocking interdependencies. So art depends on code, code depends on art, design depends on art and code. They all drive, the three, the three big ones all drive each other and they all affect each other. So you make a design decision, it ripples out for code and it ripples out for art. You make an art change, it ripples out into design. It ripples out into code. And because they're all interlocked, the difficult thing is that they ripple forward, as you would expect, in time. I mean, these all change. We now move in this direction. We now have to do this. 
but they ripple backwards as well. Work we have already done has to be redone. If we are now changing the rigs, if we are now changing a design direction, levels that we've completed are now obsolete. There are, there are, it ripples backwards and forwards, and that's what makes it so difficult for production. So that's why we have large production teams. We have, we have dedicated production teams to each facet um, to just try and keep control and predict and become this and understand where it's going to go and keep pushing it on there and understand how it affects the past and understand, understanding how it affects the future. And that's why games never finished. I mean, we are still, we are, we are patching games years later. They're still never quite finished. Even, you know, forgetting the, the live service games, forgetting the long tail games and DLC, the game itself is really properly finished. Um, because we are just, we have these interlocking interdependencies and they're, they have a real strength to them. They have a real strength because it means that these groups work very, very close to each other. Uh, it means that there is a, there is a real power in that. Um, a creative and a technological power in that. And we are we tend to be dealing with finite technological resources. We are dealing with a, a console cycle, so a console engine, for example, a console um, kit that is not going to improve over seven years. You're going to be dealing with that. We're trying to get more out of it. So we are, we're constantly working on that, and we're constantly striving and pushing the edges of what we can do and advancing our industry. And the, internet, the way that we work like that really helps in that. The other side effect is that we iterate in production. So we iterate a lot in production. As we're building it, we are iterating. So that's our that's our kind of standard of, and I'm being and I am simplifying horrendously. And there's reason for everybody on the movie side and the films and the uh, game side to call me up on any number of things that I say here. And the chances are they are right. But going back then to the movie method, the difference between the movie method is that it's all about the shoot. So what they're de- what they're doing in the movie in pre-production there is they are de-risking the shoot because once you start to do the shoot, it's on rails. Uh, the actors are in there; they're doing it. It's done. The sets are done. It it is just going to go ahead and it's going to keep going until it's done. So everything has to be booked in. The cameras have to book in. The sets have to book in. The actor, the whole thing has to be set. So you are de-risking that. So as much as you possibly can, everything is locked in. And then you set it going, and then at the end you have the post-production where you go back and you start doing your editing and your cutting and, and the rest. So what we don't do in games is we do, we're not on rails. We are interlocked and we keep going. So if, if they are if they are interlocking stacks, the the movie is them stacked just one on top of each other, and it's there's so little written about how to make how to be a producer in games. This is one of the things I found. There are, there's so little written about how to make, no, sorry, make, make games, sorry, how to make movies. There's so little written about it. I found like the kind of books that you get from universities was a, the kind of stuff I found, but there was one article written in the 70s um, and they explained it extremely well. And I think the lesson to take from it, which is the model that they use is what's called a closed temporary system. So somebody comes in, does their job, and goes. So once they're done, and that, that's it, then they're done. And then it moves on to the next one. With, with us, somebody comes in, does their job, and keeps doing it alongside everybody else right to the very, very end and gets called back. Um, and so what this, what this system, what, in order to make that work, you have to be able to be very, very prepared. So pre-production is longer. Pre-production in movies is six or seven times the length of the shoot. Like so, so for us, pre-production is a shorter period, and production is a really, really long period. And then this post, 
So we would need to have a longer pre-production and you would then lock down exactly everything that you're doing. So you set art going, you set design going into the production period. And it's there's not much room for iteration in production. In fact, what you're trying to avoid is iteration in production. Now, don't get me wrong. There's around the edges. You can always iterate. You can. You, there's always a sliding scale of things that aren't going to interfere fundamentally with it. But your basics and everything you're going to do are locked before you start a game production. If you're going to use the movie method pro- properly, and that's really hard for us to do. That's really difficult as a mindset for us to do because we see things evolving in front of us. So we want that information. We want the, our leaders want. that kind of information coming back. I mean, where we want to go down avenues and explore avenues and explore what we do, but this doesn't allow you to do that. It also doesn't allow you to evolve technology because one of the advantages that movies have is a camera set. Like, you know, it's set. It's just a thing. And it does its thing and it goes. The audio is set. The world you're in is kind of set. Even special effects have been around since they painted a moon on a background, you know. It's not there. The fundamentals haven't really changed that much. So you're dealing with really set technology. And we don't like doing that. We like pushing boundaries, especially in AAA. In order for a movie method to work, you have to have you have to draw a line under the technology. And that's really difficult for us to do. It kind of goes against what we want to do. But when you draw a line under technology, what you do is I think you kind of free up the creative. Yeah. Because we're not looking for a technological solution to a, to a creative problem anymore. We're looking just solely at lighting. So it means what it, what it allows you to do is focus on your discipline and only your discipline. So you know what I'm talking about? It has ripples backwards and ripple forward. Well, when you use a movie method, what you're doing is you're taking away the ripple back and the ripple forward and you say, what matters right now? What are you doing right now? And it allows you to focus on that. And that's quite powerful. That means that you ask, all, you ask, all you have to worry about is what's in front of you. And that's where I think the movie method is, use, is really interesting. That's where I think allowing you to have that focus. And then, so what I found looking into it further is that, you know, you can, it means that you can, um, you can create too much. That's okay. We overshoot film. We shoot from angles we'll never use. We have scenes that will get cut. What we tend to do is we, because we iterate, people get exhausted rewriting. And I was talking to a narrative uh, design company about this, and she was saying that look, it's it's the rewrites that are exhausting. Get it doing a scene and then it being cut's not so bad because then you do a different scene. But just constantly going over and redoing this one and re—that's the one that wears you out. That's the one that is soul destroying to you. And so I think if we use that method, then it's okay to create too many levels. It's okay to create too much content and actually bake that into your production schedule, knowing that, we'll, knowing that we could well cut them away. Because the movies, they polish by refinement. They polish by removing the unnecessary, polishing what they have they, they, until they have a shining pin of a production, until, it has, the, until the filler is kind of gone. We polish by addition. In games, we add more when we polish. So we will add more tech. We will add more animations. We will add more characters. We will... Add better shaders. We will whatever we will. We add when we when we polish, and that's what we use our polish rays for. Those are two big fundamental differences in how we do it. So we can also reduce our post production time as a result of that as well. So these, I think, are the are the fundamentals. But we it obviously can't work for every part. There are certain types of games it can work for. There are games that it can't work for. The other part of that is that. 
movie productions, their core team, because they work this way with external development, they come together and they disperse. When we build studios, we build studios to last. We don't build studios to die. And this is a thing that we have to accept if we want to go down this route, is that we will build something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's okay. But we, as an industry, we can't accept that way of working right now. Or we certainly struggle. We're not set up to do it. Um, and that's, I mean, that's why the, partly why the movie industry is so good at spotting the right talent to fill in the right gaps, to understand where they go. Um, and it's through that method that they're allowed to be able to maintain those small teams at the top, because those small teams at the top are focusing on what's in front of them, not what's ahead of them, what's behind them, and the disastrous consequences you could have for making a tiny change in a game. Yeah, because it, it sounds like, you know, to, to to test run this sort of method, you would almost need a new company that, could even be you know an entertainment company so yeah we could do film we can do tv we can do games we can do comics books and literally have that sort of leadership team who who are just exec producers showrunners that type of thing and it is it is you know it's like this game is going to be a project um the next project we do might not be a game um and we're just going to go out and we're going to piece together those those sort of key talent key teams uh, around that is there do you, do you think it's a case of it's not done that way traditionally just because that's the way it's always been done in games or is there you know do you see an opportunity where you know the games industry could look at saying we're just going to draw a line under we're going to use the tech that we have right now and we're going to limit ourselves to a certain amount to focus on on the creative i, I always uh, remember this uh, i had a friend a few years ago who you know i was having a, a coffee with him and he said he was a composer and he said i'm going to do a, a track but i'm going to make the whole track just using an, an upright acoustic piano uh, so i'm going to you know, I mean, I'm going to do everything on that percussion, bass, you know, melodies, pads, everything just by using this piece of wood and, you know, and processing it to an inch of its life and all this. And I always thought that was really interesting because he was saying, I'm just going to limit myself to this one thing and see how far I can take it. Um, so, yeah, I guess I guess the question there is, is it simply a case of we've just never done it that way? Or I think partly, yes. I think partly we are a constantly evolving industry, so it's hard for us to want to do it that way. Um, we see it in the, the ind in independent, in the indie scene, we see this because they are by default limited. And you, that's why you see the creativity pushed so much further uh, in the independent games market. And it's, and it's, I talk about the movie method, about the production and the rest, and, and, and maybe limiting the the technology side, but they do it all the time. They work with limitations. And the fact of the matter is that the creative process is nothing but working within limitations. That's all we do. Every creative process has a limitation. It can be a budget. It can be time. It can be 
access to skill set, access to equipment, whatever. It's Everything has a limitation. Even if you have a blank sheet of paper and you start writing a book, you have a limitation because you set those limitations yourself. This is this character. This is how he would react. This is this world that they're in. You gradually set those limitations and out of it comes a creative product. Um, we just have to be a bit more open and uh, vicious about our, <laughs> about our limitations. Um, like the... The example I, I tend to give is that one of the scariest things you can see in the theatre is um, the woman in black. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have, yeah. Right? Yeah. So the woman in black is what? One clothes basket, two men, some sound effects, and a few shadows? Yeah. That's it, really. And it's terrifying. So if you can terrify somebody with those kind of limitations, then you don't have an excuse for not terrifying somebody inside uh, Unreal. Are finding, you know, the, you think of the axes, you think what we already have. You don't have an excuse for doing that. There is a way to do it. And I think when you remove the the desire, the, the desire, the, the real need to, to advance the tech and, and do something new with the tech and advance that and just focus on the creative, I think you will unlock some doors. And I think you will take a little bit of, a little bit of weight off um, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we could probably chat about this you know all day um but as i say you know if anyone listening to this there's there's more kind of information uh you know available kind of through xds and the podcast um i definitely you know urge everybody to go and check that out um which kind of brings us on to xds uh you're obviously a, a member of the advisory board uh for that event can you tell us a little bit about you know how that came around and you know what does xds mean to you and and you know in your industry um and you know i'm, I'm conscious as well that there will be people listening to this show who are moving into the to the game space um particularly you know uh, animators and animation studios and um yeah so i think it's worth kind of you know highlighting xds as an event uh, itself yeah, I mean, XDS is super interesting. So XDS for me, I first went to when I was an outsource manager at Sumo. And it was the first time there was ever this kind of event. Um, and honestly, it was like getting a big hug. Because for the first time, I met I met people who were going through the same thing I was going through. Because if you're, if you're an external dev manager or an outsource manager, it's a fairly lonely profession, right? You sit in the middle and you spend most of your time annoying people internally and annoying people externally, right? So yeah, like the very best outsource managers or external dev managers I know are very well-organized diplomats, right? So, yeah. so you sit in this kind of, you're not, you're quite often across multiple projects or multiple teams, so you're no real fully part of one. You're, you touch upon many of them. So you sit in this quite a lonely position, especially early on when there wasn't this event, you forged your own way. You just kind of worked it out as you were going along. So as you, the first time I went to the event, it was, oh, you, you you suffer the same problem I do. I recognize that problem. <laughs> and you're, you're, you you find it hard too. It's not like I've been doing it wrong all this time. Everybody finds this a bit difficult. Everybody, you know, and finding that with the suppliers as well and getting to understand the suppliers better and that world, it was so important. Honestly, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face the first time I went there because it was just, I was just surrounded. Because this was an industry I really loved, but it was a really early days of the industry. Um, so to find uh, like-minded people there and, Credit has to go to EA um, and to Jason Harris and to Chris Wren and the, the teams at first. I think Grayson Charms as well was one of the first people that came up with this idea um, for bringing it into existence because EA didn't need to do it. They took the 
rising tide raises all ships approach and just brought in everybody to it. Um, and they were so like, you didn't, you didn't see an EA banner at this event. It didn't promote or push EA at all. They just provided enough funds for it to break even. But then um, under Chris's uh, just sheer energy, I think, and sheer force of will, it became an incredibly professional event. Um, they really, they drove it into a, becoming incredibly focused and it helped us to learn from each other. And those first days were really basic, like, how do you communicate? What are the tools you use? What are, what are the problems you've hit? Um, and from that, we have seen it evolve and grow. So I think it was three or 400 in the first event. It's now 800 plus um, as an event, and it could be a lot bigger. Um, and the industry has advanced, and I would say that the industry has advanced 10 times faster because of that event because of the sharing that has gone on, because there is now a community um, of suppliers and managers and developers that know each other and understand each other and go through the same problems and evolve and learn from each other. And the industry has had to evolve that well, that, that fast as well, because the games industry has, and it's, it's had to pull alongside. And it has done that without much love. You know, outside of the industry, we are still... We're not, it's not recognized in the same way as an industry, as, as a developer. It's not put alongside in the same way. Um, and I think, but I think within the community, I think that's why people are passionate within the community because you have to be a certain kind of person to be into, into it. But also once you're there, you realize the talent. We were talking about people more talented than us. There's so much talent and it's so diverse. It's so global. Um, and, he, and that XES really managed to push that. And the advisory board was... A good part of that, and outside, out, out of that came um, Ignite, which was a developer-only conference where the developers talked to each other, uh, and the Insights Report. Um, and so we have seen XDS grow and develop. But it also highlights, it's getting to a point now where it's highlighting some of the problems that we face as an industry. Um, I would always advise anyone to go to XDS, I advise anyone to get to get there, to, um, to go onto the site and look at the materials. Um, but now as we are pushing forward, as the industry has evolved and got larger and external development has become the way we make games. I think it's um, Dave Sanderson at um, the last XDS said, you know, this is now how we make games. Um, it has highlighted how little support there is. So I think it's keywords. Uh, one of their reports uh, estimate the external development industry to be worth about 13 billion a year. So the gaming industry is worth 200 billion. The music industry, which I think is global, or it may be US only, but to give that some perspective, the, US, the music industry is worth $21 billion. Now, if you think of the amount of conferences, independent bodies, support structures, communities, what have you, that are in industries, that are in the music industry, or in all many of the other industries that are worth far, far less than external development is, if you think the games don't get made without it, one two and a half day conference a year seems very light to me. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> it seems very light to me. Um, no independent body. The XS is the closest we have to an independent body, just by default. the The event this year sold out in thirty minutes on the supplier side, and it sold out on the buyer side as well. So when an event and which is a which is a tragedy, really, because 
those most think about all our suppliers in Asia and all around the world who, who woke up to find out that their tickets were the tickets were gone. I never stood a chance. In fact, if you weren't at your desk within a half hour window, getting a ticket was yeah. extremely hard, was and me. it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, that was you. Well, yeah, there you go. You understand the pain, right? Yeah. You understand the pain. So it is. It's it's that that it's. But what it does for me, what I'm really seeing now is it highlights how precarious a situation the support structure around external development is. And it may be a byproduct of that lack of focus, that lack of, of visibility, that lack of advocacy for the industry is the body that's, there's not a body standing up going, this is brilliant. What they're doing is amazing. It's not like, it's not just about the development, it's about the whole, everybody contributed to that and and the artists and the animators and the and the coders and the UX and the UI and the narrative design and the mocap and everything else that goes in, all the and the audio and the wonderful efforts that go in, we don't we haven't got a body that stands up and shouts about it. It shouts about it inside a very contained arena of two and a half days long. And also the finally on that point is that if you look at the there are so many students that get most of their work or a very large percentage of their work from XDS. So if they don't get to go. They can lose. There's thirty or forty percent of their work sometimes that they don't get, or they don't get leads they'd ever see. That's a very, very delicate pillar to have a thirteen billion dollar industry perched on top of. There aren't very many marketing opportunities out there. There aren't. It isn't the same way that you could. You can't put putting adverts in magazines doesn't really have that big an effect. Um. So I think what XDS has, what's happened to XDS is that it is starting now to highlight through how fast it sells out, how focused it is, how much work teams get, um, that we don't have enough support inside the external development community for an industry of our size. And we need it's something I think that we need to, to rectify, we need to advocate for, and we need to push on. And now the independence of XDS, as EA have withdrawn the funding and, and Chris and the team have taken it independent. Oddly enough, it's the best shot we have at forming that body, and it shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't really be the case, um, but it's just the way that it's fallen. So I'm excited for what happens for XDS independently and, and the opportunities it affords if we decide to take them, if if we find a way to go down that route. Um, but yeah, so it's a wonderful event now. Big support, huge fan of Chris and the rest. Um, they do an incredible job. And the team uh, at Brand Live, who, who put it on, just um, work miracles every year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that insight. Um, it really is, it really is a useful, uh, uh, well, such a key event. Um, I've, I've, I've only ever been once, I think. Uh, we, we do have a, a business development rep who's in the States who, who kind of goes for us. Um, and then obviously, well, went virtually with COVID and stuff like that. So hopefully be a bit quicker off the mark next year. And uh, <laughs> well, um, I think I think it has to grow one way or another. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a big there's a big demand for an XDS Europe, I think, and and, yeah. and adding yeah. extra dates to a calendar. And there are avenues to explore, but I think at the at a base level, it's a bigger event than we than we can. The problem is, you want you expand it, extend it in time, because God, you're exhausted by the end of the two and a yeah. half days. Yeah. Um, and but the event they're 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 limited by location size at the moment as well. So it's, yeah, but that can change. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what the what the evolution is now that the the, the shackles are off. Um, and they can yeah. yeah they can evolve. Watch this space. <laughs> um, this has been great, Sam. Um, 
I really appreciate your time today. Uh, we're going to finish up with a, a, a new closing question, um, which is kind of centered around, you know, everything that we do, you know, on, on the Big Mouth Audio side is all about, it's driven by storytelling. Uh, we see ourselves as a storytelling company primarily. Um, I'm curious to know what particular experiences, memories, um, have 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 stuck with you or have left left a, a lasting impact on you from a particular story uh, from a, an area of storytelling is there anything that kind of springs to mind that you know a great great storytelling that's left a an impact with yourself there is there's one but my my favourite story in in games, which I I like so much that I actually considered I, I figured it's just an urban myth. But this year at Develop, I can't remember who it was, but it's somebody who works in the Scottish games industry or, or worked heavily in the Scottish industry was able to answer this question. I said, "Look, this is my favourite story in games," and but I think it's an urban myth. And I told him, and he said, "No, it's true." So I can tell the story with a bit of confidence, unless he's also stringing me along as well. Um, but so it, it always interests me um, that there is a game development hub in Dundee, and that's odd that there is a game development hub that far north, right, in a port town in Scotland. It seems very strange, and it has been a game development hub for forever, right, for as long as it. And so and I was told that the reason for this, and if you think of what it's produced as well, I said, so for the reason for this is that back in the in the days of Sinclair Spectrum, the the Spectrum 28K or 48K was uh, the factory was in Scotland. And one year um, a truckload of Spectrum 48K was stolen. And the Spectrums were handed out for next to nothing on the streets of Northern Scotland, particularly Dundee. <laughs> and in and those, just remember, no YouTube, no instruction manuals, no nothing, but just the act of having those kits out in that area, the kids started to play with them, started to learn them, started to make their own simple, basic games. Back when they were bedroom coders, and those bedroom coders gradually came together and the game's got a bit bigger, and now we find ourselves, out of that came DMA, and out of DMA came Rockstar, and out of Rockstar came Grand Theft Auto 3, and all the rest of the Grand Theft Autos. So out of somebody handing out Spectrum Sinclairs cheaply on those streets of Dundee, the single biggest entertainment product ever created in GTA 5 <laughs> was born 20 years later. And that I find amazing. Um, and that, that's my favorite. So apparently it is true. Um, and I think the lesson from that is just don't underestimate what a spark can give you. What just that bit of faith. If you had said to somebody, we need to build a, a technology hub, right? If you said, we need to build a technology that's going to work on cutting edge technology that's just being born, the home computer just being born, nobody would have said, let's go to Dundee. In the early 1980s, yeah. like nobody said, that's the place. That's where you would do it. But opportunity drives that, um, and 
yeah, I think it's I think it's a wonderful story, and I continue to hope that it is true. That's so interesting. I've, I've always wondered that myself. You know, obviously being Scottish, uh, why why Dundee? <laughs> why, Dundee? Yeah, why Dundee? But there you go. Well, I'm I'm going to the Scottish Games week next week, so that'll be my. Uh, my mission. Check it out for me. Yeah, yeah. I'll <laughs> I'll ask around. <laughs> if it, even if it's not true, I'm telling the story anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, thank, uh, Sam. Thanks so much uh, for your time today and sharing all your your insight and uh, experiences. Um, it's been a real pleasure to to chat to you. Um, and I know that our audience will get uh, lots of uh, lots of value from this uh, conversation. And uh, I yeah. Hope so. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. It's been a lovely way to spend a morning. <laughs> Thank you so Good. much. And I hope, your voice is, uh, hope your voice isn't too... It'll be okay. I don't think I need it until later this afternoon. I can, I can rest up, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, I said thanks so much, and uh, right. hopefully we'll see you out there uh, next year in, in Vancouver. So take care. Awesome. Cheers, Sam. Bye. Bye. <laughs>